Hey everyone, just want to welcome you this morning and um, I want to introduce you to two of my favorite people in the whole wide world and we're going to have a conversation about wealth inequality um, in, in, our, in this country specifically but also across the globe. Um, and originally I was thinking that someone like myself would do the interview but um, the more I thought about it the more I thought how amazing it would be for someone like Sophia um, who is 13 years old and really going to ask some questions for the next generation from the next generation um, and actually keep things down to earth and not heady and, and all of those things. And, and Sophia, I specifically uh, picked you for numerous reasons, but one of them was um, you write a lot of songs that I absolutely love, but two of my favorite songs are Untouchable and Mars. And I love um, essentially your cry, for lack of a better term, that we could do better as a society. Um, your yeah. desire, not for uh, not only for the environment, but also for um, your sort of a, an attack on classism um, in our in, across our country and in our communities, um, is inspiring and challenging, and um, I think helpful to this conversation. So I knew that you would ask good questions, um, and it would come from a place uh, that we need to hear because you are. At this point, it seems unfortunately inheriting our world. <laughs> and so ask the right questions. Um, yeah. um, and with that being said, uh, we, we kind of looked around for, for some peeps who we thought could be really helpful into this conversation. And Aaron Anderson and I have been dear friends for a long time. I just want to read who Aaron is. Aaron Anderson lives in Berkeley, California. He is an education administrator and is the editor of The Bias magazine a publication of the Institute for Christian Socialism. He also writes occasionally on religion and politics. And I've known Aaron for about 10 years, and we have both really grown um, sort of in our knowledge and understanding, both theologically and economically, politically, philosophically. And I just love bouncing around ideas and thoughts and, and dreaming about what a better world could look like. So I am super excited to, to have uh, Sophia interview you, Aaron. Um, and so without further ado, I'm not gonna talk much. Um, I am simply going to moderate um, if, if need be. But um, so Sophia, take it away. All right. Um, so my first question was um, just to kind of summarize, what is wealth inequality and how do you think it's affecting our communities? Yes, thank you. Um, so I would say that there are a number of ways you could define wealth inequality. Um, you know, if you hop online to start reading about wealth inequality, you'll see lots of different definitions. You'll see mountains of research and statistics. Your eyes will probably glaze over as mine did uh, preparing for this. Um, so like maybe for our conversation, it might be helpful to talk broadly about what I would call like economic inequality. That mm -hmm. takes into account uh, a lot of different types of inequality, including uh, wealth and income inequality, which Ripple talked about quite a bit. Right. Um, I would say very simply, economic inequality is uh, the, in, the unequal distribution of uh, income, wealth and opportunity among different groups in society. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, it's it's a fact, it's undeniable that this kind of inequality exists, especially in America. Mm -hmm. um, but people are divided over how serious 
inequality is, uh, and even whether it's a bad thing to have yeah. so much economic inequality, right? Right. Um, so maybe I could just paint a quick picture for those who are on the fence about just how unequal uh, American society is. Um, a couple of things that I could throw out just to just to help paint this picture. Um, over the last few years, actually, the, the American economy has been growing very steadily. Uh, the economy in the U.S. has never generated so much wealth. Uh, two years ago in 2018, uh, net household worth, right, so across all households in America, that worth came to $98 trillion, just, you know, an immense amount. Um, Eric Levitz, who writes at New York Magazine, has pointed out that if you were to spread this across evenly, all U.S. households, uh, it would put about $298,000 in every American's pocket. So if you're from a family of four, you are a millionaire family at the very least. Um, but I mean, that's not the case, right? I mean, this wealth is not yeah. distributed evenly by any means. Um, at this point, uh, the wealthiest fifth of Americans now hold over 90% of the country's total wealth. Um, the number of billionaires has more than doubled in the last decade, all the while food stamp dependency is up 40%. Mm. Uh, recently, the richest 400 families in the U.S. paid an average tax rate of 23%, while the bottom half working class people paid 24%. Mm, yeah, I saw um, I saw a video where they uh, scaled down the population of the United States to 100 people. And they had this fact that 1% of America has 40% of the country's wealth, yes. um, which was pretty crazy. It's almost like half yes. of the entire wealth of the country in 1%. Right. I mean, it's truly staggering to think about. You know, we all have the, like the image of Bernie with his, you know, millionaires and billionaires, right? And, mm -hmm. and and that's something we can laugh about along with him. But but truly, it, these are like almost unimaginable. Yeah, it's crazy. About, Actually, right? yeah, I read a fact um, a while ago that the human mind can't even um, grasp what the number one billion is. Yes. And it's just yes. crazy that that humans can have that much money. That's um, right. It is quite literally being able crazy. to grasp the concept of it. Yes. Um, Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and you know, one more data point that links into this for us millennials, right? I mean, we're the kind of people who, for instance, the average millennial at this point will never, uh, if, if this kind of pattern uh, continues, never be able to save enough for retirement. And yet we're talking about numbers that we can't even imagine, right, that are in the bank accounts yeah. of, of billionaires. Right. Um, so yeah, these are just some, just just some truly shocking figures. I think um, you probably have heard things too about you know people who can calculate how much a worker earns in a minute or an hour compared to someone like Jeff Bezos. I mean, it, the average for a worker is like twenty seven dollars an hour, somewhere around there. And Jeff Bezos's um, minute rate, he makes about one hundred forty nine thousand dollars each minute, right? So it's figures like these where we're just talking about astronomical forms of wealth. Yeah. and unbelievable forms of inequality that result from that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you know, uh, there, there's there's a question too of like what this does to communities, right? So mm -hmm. I have friends, Paul has friends, you know, uh, who we go way back with from, from um, different political backgrounds that would look at this and say, you know, this is just something that all societies have to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I actually think, you know, again, there's a lot of research around what it actually does to communities um, and, and it really does show that it's, it's, it's quite detrimental. Um, 
both yeah. to what it does for individual well-being and also communal well-being and belonging. Um, inequality uh, of many sorts, especially economic, you know, makes our communities more susceptible to sickness and disease, mm -hmm. um, much more susceptible to social and political violence, yeah. uh, drug addiction, mental illness, obesity, clearly loss of free time and community life, imprisonment, um, poor well-being for our children. I think about this a lot, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's helpful too, to think about like this does something to our minds too, not just our, our bodies and our, and our yeah. community belonging, but, but humans actually have very strong psychological responses to inequality and, and hierarchy, right? Yeah. So we tend to confuse wealth with personal worth, which means inequality can literally shape our social perceptions, how we see the mm -hmm. social world. And we begin to think about people in terms of like superior, inferior, dominance, right. subordination. Um, you don't have to look much further than, uh, you know, the White House to see how this begins to infect the way that we talk about our life together as Americans, right? Yeah. We tend to start thinking that that dominance and subordination are just a natural part of our life together based mm -hmm. on who does and who doesn't have wealth and privilege. Yeah, it's crazy how, like, the wealth of people can play into so many aspects of life and, like, psychology and like social life and um, basically like almost everything that's um, right that's right absolutely and absolutely. how it's like grown from like small civilizations like ancient times and like today how much it's controlling the lives of people mm -hmm. um, crazy mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and i think we'll probably talk a bit later too about you know um sort of whether things have always been this way or not, right? Like, like you know, th th there's a history behind the way that societies right. have divided up wealth and who produces wealth and who mm -hmm. steals and, and takes and appropriates wealth. Um, and then there are, there are little mini histories inside of that too, right? If you look at the last 100 years of um, American life, like things weren't this bad actually 40 years ago. So my next question is, um, in your opinion, can you give me some examples of what the worst form of wealth disparity, wealth inequality is today in our communities? Sure, yeah. Um, there are um, a couple examples that come to mind. Um, let me just say, you know, um, COVID has really um, helped to illustrate just how dire the problem of inequality is. Right. Um, it's it's in a sense shown up some of the worst parts of the way we think about our economy and democracy and race and many many things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but but so get this. So there's a report by a Swiss bank um, that found that billionaires actually increased their wealth by more than a quarter, so about 27 percent mm -hmm. during the height of the COVID crisis. So from about April to July, the wealth of billionaires grew by a quarter. Um, so these already huge fortunes reached a record high of a, a, about a cumulative $10.2 trillion, right? So, mm -hmm. so this is what's happening while people are suffering and dying, right? Millions yeah. of people around the world lose their jobs um, or have to go to work and expose themselves to sickness and death. Uh, we're just struggling to get by and, and, you know, have just a very paltry government stimulus, right? And at this point now have been told, good luck, we'll see if it happens again. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on, you know, in the midst of ordinary working people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's happened. Now, that's 
just a recent illustration though of what I, what I wanted to say is the most graphic illustration, which is um, kind of a decades long trend. Um, there are a number of studies that have showed from like, um, I think it's 1978 to 2018. So about, yeah, that's uh, 50 years, is that right? Um, CEO compensation grew a whopping 940%, um, while average worker compensation has grown about 12%. In other words, almost nothing. Um, now that, that figure is like shocking in itself. Again, we're talking about astronomical numbers, right? That are hard to think about. Um, but it's important to actually point out too that, that worker productivity, productivity has actually increased in that time. We're actually working more hours. Mm -hmm. We're enduring more workplace stress. Uh, mm -hmm. We're seeing less benefits overall. Our retirements are more and more precarious. Um, so here we are, you know, 40, 50 years later and with almost nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. um, so why does that gap exist, right? Is it just natural? Yeah. Is it kind of like a whoops, here we are? You know, I think for young people like us um, who've grown up over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, um, we, we see the, the travesty and the outrage in these numbers, but we don't always know quite what's going on behind the scenes, right? So is this just right. like a natural thing? Um, but it's it's not. I mean, these these same sort of studies show that th this gap does does did not occur because CEOs and executives have suddenly become more productive themselves mm -hmm. or more skilled. Right. The same studies show this gap exists because they have been able to cut wages, to avoid taxes, uh, to receive exorbitant bonuses. Again, we're talking in sometimes the millions of dollars, and mm -hmm. um, they've seen increases in stock shares. That's, that's where a lot of the money is, right? Money that poor people and uh, working people don't have access to. Um, so you have this new entire class of millionaires and billionaires, billionaires who have fortunes that are now literally impossible to spend over even okay. multiple lifetimes of extravagant luxury, right? What is the purpose of this kind of money? All the while people struggle with homelessness um, you know, medical bankruptcy, things like that. So to me, this is just, this is a stark illustration of where things are at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other that, that I think is an important um, thing to bring up in, in, in this moment of uh, mm -hmm. rebellions against racial injustice in the midst of a COVID yeah. pandemic. Yes. Um, are the disparities, the racial disparities in infections and hospitalizations and deaths um, among racial minorities, right? And the relationship that actually has to wealth disparity, right? There actually is a relationship to it. Um, yeah. So so just, just quick numbers here, right? So among uh, American Indians, uh, Alaska Natives, Hispanics and black people, um, their rates of infection COVID are nearly three times higher than a white person's. Wow. Um, the hospitalization rate is five times higher for an American Indian or Alaska Native, uh, four and a half times higher for Blacks and Hispanics, and the COVID death rate is two times higher for a Black person. Um, mm -hmm. Now, we're, these are smaller numbers compared to what we're talking about yeah. from earlier, but then when you're mm -hmm. thinking two times higher death rate, that is still just a, an unconscionable amount, right? Yeah. Um, to, to, to think about a human death yeah. rate that's twice when it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. um, these, I think these, these disparities actually do tell us something though about economic uh, equality. Um, and I'll just say something here about 
African-Americans because that's something I've done more research about. Um, right. You know, I think that the history of black life in America is partly the history of their inability to access American wealth, right? Yeah. So if, if you back up and think about, you know, the plight of uh, slaves in America, you know, 250 years ago, yeah. um, black folks were owned. Uh, and one of the features of being owned is you have no wealth, period, right? right. Um, you're simply a cog for pumping out wealth for white people. And most Americans would see that as a travesty. Yeah. Most Americans, I don't know about you guys growing up, but most Americans often have little sense of the history of black people's integration into American life after slavery though, right? So I know for me growing up as a white evangelical, I was homeschooled. Um, my sense of black life in America was, you know, uh, slavery and then emancipation by kind of kind white people. And then Martin Luther King's beautiful speech about colorblindness. Mm -hmm. And then the ghetto, like like the ghettos, you know that that that's how I grew up thinking about what black life has been like in America. Mm -hmm. And there was this sense I had of like, you know, without the help of white people, black folks have this innate tendency towards poverty and initiative, or they or they lack initiative, right? Um, and I really believe this is because they didn't have some kind of connection to the kind of good white Christian work ethic that I thought I had, you know, and my my peers had. Um, but black people have been experiencing, you know, um, ever since emancipation uh, through white racial terror and legislation and politics, white people have been very, very concerted about trying to fend off the possibility of black people becoming full citizens yeah. in America, especially yeah. economically. Mm -hmm. um, what has this done, right? We jump to today and we think about the fact that, um, you know, uh, black people have been segregated from housing, right? They've been segregated uh, in education. They've been segregated in banking even, right? Access to certain kinds of loans and things like that and savings accounts. These, are all, these have all created risk factors um, that have now created huge amounts of risk for black people during COVID, right? So mm -hmm. they're less likely to go get tested. Uh, they're less likely to go to the hospital because they know the bills will come in and they can't pay them. Exactly. Um, they, they bear the higher burden of chronic disease mm -hmm. more than white people. And now COVID has exploited all of this. Right. So I, th th this whole history of slavery, um, the efforts of white people to fend off integration of black people into American life and now COVID, these are all linked together, I think, through the history of black people's access or lack thereof to wealth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting way of thinking about all these problems kind of yeah. together at the same time in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Yeah, it's crazy how it brought everything together. You can see it in a different perspective now. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. 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 Um, so I'll move on to my next question, which is um, how do you think we can fight off wealth disparity at like a local level, national or um, and international level? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a big question. Um, yeah, and locally, nationally, internationally, I mean, there's a lot that could be said for all three of those. Um, a couple things, I would say, um, one of the most basic things, and I, I, I wouldn't want this to be taken in a um, as if it's just like, like a casual throwaway suggestion. My first idea was actually starting reading groups. Um, I say that because, um, well, one, we're in COVID. We're all, we're all locked inside for the most part, right? So, yeah. so we have time to do these things. 
Um, but, but also, you'd be surprised, like, the history of a lot of radical movements in America um, that have brought about huge reforms, even revolutions, uh, both here in America and internationally, have been started through book clubs, book groups, mm -hmm. with working people working uh, hard hours during the day and then getting together uh, in solidarity at night to read and try mm -hmm. to figure out where are we and how do we get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, picking up a biography, you know, of maybe a favorite politician, right, that's fought okay. for um, uh, reform for inequality. Uh, maybe it's a revolutionary, right, that has fought off, you know, um, dictatorships in Latin America, right, that were, um, you know, in cahoots with American uh, powers, you know, you know, take your pick, but, but there's a host of resources here that I think young people are especially hungry for and we have the time yeah. to do it. And, and now that we have Zoom to coordinate us all, we can do that. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah, don't forget that's been a powerful resource for people who want to affect change. Yeah, yeah, it's great that you say that because um, me and my mom actually just recently started a social justice book club um, with nice. some of my um, peers. And it's great, we just finished reading Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great book and it actually plays into what we're talking about, some of what we're talking about, how um, how poverty um, plays into the incarceration of many people, many young people. And you make a great point too, Sophia. I mean, like, I think, I think people like us, um, uh, you know, that are just now keenly aware of how different sorts of oppression and inequality all intersect. Mm -hmm. I mean, works, uh, books, articles, you know, that try to tackle oppression and inequality from multiple angles, not just economic, but racial, uh, gender, right, um, colonial violence, things like this. Um, yeah. Analyses like that, I think, are really important because, again, COVID has only shown us that in a crisis like this, you, you lift the, the rug up, as it were, and you see underneath that there are just a number of interconnected and long historical oppressions and violences in American life that are just totally knotted together, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, finding books that help you sort of unknot those things and analyze them yeah. and think about them um, as related is, I think, really important. I think uh, other things that are worth thinking about, I mean, this is a simple thing, but but I've been really impressed with it uh, recently is just like the importance of talking to neighbors about struggles. So, I mean, like you'd be surprised to learn, you know, that your next door neighbor, for instance, is a month away from eviction if you actually go out and talk to people, right? Or is on food stamps or is facing down a huge medical bill like I recently yeah. was. Um, and I think it's important because these kind of conversations, especially if you're in kind of a middle class area, you know, of, you know, um, I, I'm in Berkeley, right? So mm -hmm. kind of uh, other metropolitan areas um, where, you know, these conversations can help us push back against our tendency to want to believe everyone around us is just doing okay. We're actually a little bit afraid to find out that somebody's suffering. Mm -hmm. It's not maybe close to home for us or it's not familiar. Um, but I think making ourselves has that, have those kind of conversations is important for awakening our sense of urgency around the kinds of local injustices, right? I mean, local injustices aren't just things you discover in books and newspapers. I mean, they are literally in the bodies and souls of people around you. Yeah. So I think that kind of thing can be a great, a gateway, right? To really thinking about where the needs are. Um, and again, you can't do it. You can't really address injustice around you without knowing the people who are affected by it. Um, so I don't want to underplay that at all. Um, 
I think on, on, a, on a bigger scale, then starting to work towards alternatives, um, th there's this term that activists and organizers use called mutual aid, right? Um, mutual aid is an important thing, I think, for our generation to think about because it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. focused on ways of building power and community protection without the interference of bosses and landlords and the government, right? Yeah. So, so in our day and age, it's not sufficient, right? But it's a really important tool for thinking outside of those categories of power and domination. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bail funds, right? Heard a lot about those with Black Lives Matters protests and, and um, yeah. imprisonment. Grassroots legal and eviction defense, um, disaster response, food distribution. Um, there, there are just so many examples that, that can be found uh, ongoing, many likely in our cities and neighborhoods, right? They're again devoted yeah. to thinking about a different kind of world, right? Yeah. Uh, theorists call this prefigurative politics. Don't let that word scare you. Basically means thinking about the kind of future we want to have and realizing it somehow here in the present, right? And so these ways of thinking about how to be together, take care of each other, um, pay for each other, without being under the thumb of somebody who wants to dominate us. That's a really important thing for us to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the last thing I would say before I'll just talk about movements, because that's an important last part. Um, I mean, finding out about, um, I think, local and state politicians that are involved in fighting for working people and their families is really important. It can be really hard to do um, to engage with local politicians because they just don't necessarily have the kind of money right. and media spotlight that career politicians do. In some cases, they have to spend a lot of money just on trying to fight against like bad press and stuff, right? That's happened here in Berkeley quite a bit. Some mm -hmm. of our most progressive politicians in Berkeley and Richmond, their opponents spent more money trying to smear them than actually talking about their platform, right? Yeah. But these are really important things. I mean, in some sense, real progressive change, radical reforms, even revolutions come about through the bottom up, right? So who are those people that are actually tuned into the voices of their next door neighbors and their, their neighborhood councils and city councils? Those are important people to work on supporting. My next question is, how do you think people who are religious and specifically you as a Christian, how do you think they are working to close the gap in wealth disparity. Yeah, so um, I mean, I would say uh, working for the Institute for Christian Socialism has been mm -hmm. wonderful for me because it's introduced me to a, uh, a set of people that do care about this issue quite a bit, right? And I think, again, my, my background has been among Christians, uh, uh, who largely do not care about these things, or at least their faith has ways of rationalizing mm -hmm. um, egregious forms of inequality and yeah. domination and oppression. Um, so there is good work being done. And I think the, the, the best work is often done not through Christians trying to say we have an angle on justice or we have, we have um, you know, kind of an exclusive perspective on this, that if people would just see things our way, things would change. It's Christians who, because of their faith convictions, go out and start working with and building power with other people that are trying to take care of the poor, trying to realize a better future. Um, I'll say this, I think the single uh, most important thing I can say is actually negative, which is that, um, you know, uh, you should be very, very suspicious of religious people, and especially, you know, white Christians, that, that those are my people, uh, who say that religion and politics are completely separate, you know, or that religion is, religion is not political. 
um, or that politics just kind of falls neatly into place after you figure out your relationship with God, right? Yeah. Christianity and religion are always political. Uh, the early church, the Christian church understood this, slave abolitionists understood this. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, crusaders and Southern Christian slave owners also understood this very well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always a political environment in which religious people are going to minister and to think about their faith and try to actualize their goals of, um, of serving and supporting and caring for the oppressed. Um, you know, I'll say that like, especially Christians in America are very good about talking about the importance of caring for the poor, the widow, the oppressed, mm -hmm. the imprisoned, mm -hmm. but they often think about this in very individualistic ways, right? So they love to talk about serving the oppressed as individuals. They're yeah. not all that happy to talk about addressing the systems that create that oppression in the first place. Right. Um, and, and, and again, that, that's speaking primarily from my community. I don't know if you've experienced this, this problem too. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but um, yeah, I, I think, I think um, again, especially white Christians in America, we love the idea of being above the fray of politics and conflict so much so that we become invested in never upsetting the status quo uh, rather mm -hmm. than like telling ourselves, hey, justice might just require doing the right thing. And that means taking a side mm -hmm. um, and taking sides does oftentimes incur conflict. Uh, you end up making enemies, which the Bible yeah. talks a whole lot about. <laughs> In fact, it says things like, if you don't have enemies, you should worry about, you know, <laughs> the quality of your faith. Um, so, yeah, I just think it, it speaks volumes about your social privilege to say something like, I don't think faith and politics mix, or God doesn't want us to stir yeah. up division by talking about inequality. Mm -hmm. When millions of people do face inequality and racism and bigotry as a regular part of life and have no choice but to figure out how to survive in the face of that kind of oppression. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that the single most important thing here in our religious communities, as we work towards trying to address that inequality, if we do indeed care about that, um, is to try to change our mindset from trying to, I would say, you know, persuade the minds of the wealthy and powerful few. Um, that will hardly ever do anything to actually create durable, large-scale change, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have understanding that ending the oppression that's caused by the wealthy and powerful few requires taking a side, being on the side of workers, the oppressed, the voiceless, and yeah. building movements and coalitions of real power. Um, and again, that will make us uncomfortable, you know? Like, mm -hmm. like our faith convictions drive us, but if we want to actually build justice uh, for the whole world, we can't ask people to subordinate themselves to our, our convictions, right? Mm. Um, that's a hard thing for a lot of religious people to internalize. Yeah. Um, so those are a few things I could say. Last question that I have, um, which is me and my generation are looking forward to hopefully, hopefully inheriting a better future. Um, how do you think we can get there? Wow. Um, yes, I trust you more than me at this point. <laughs> There's already a significant age gap, and I mean that quite seriously. Um, I trust my own kids and their friends and people like yourself more than me already, um, because I've seen the incredible amount of agency and, um, and intuition for what radical change involves, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about some of the climate change protests that I've been to with my kids and my wife, and uh, just just the impressive 
um, number of younger kids there that weren't just, you know, dragging their feet behind their parents, but were at the front of the lines. There's some of these signs, like their analysis was like, that's way better than any, uh, you know, um, you know, climate change activist or socialist would ever tell you, you know? Yeah. Um, I think if, if I were to give some advice to people who are going to change the world, you know, um, like yourself and your peers, I mean, I think the first thing is like a really blunt recognition that the world your parents grew up in and perhaps the world you were promised as I was no longer exists. Um, this has been something that I've had to learn the really hard way, you know, again, yeah. given my background, right? You're not just mm -hmm. promised salvation in the afterlife, but in a sense, you're almost promised uh, clean, white, safe, white suburbia. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, living in California, experiencing like all these fires and, 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 the, and confronting the fact that these fires, short of radical action, are just a new part of what life looks like to live in California. Um, we're already, in a sense, seeing migrations, right, out of certain states because yeah. of climate change, fires, suffocating conditions, right? All that brought about by climate change that is already marking the world in ways that are irreversible. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's important for people uh, because my generation and our politicians and our leaders want to talk about how little that matters, right? Or that we can change things. Not, you know, nothing's irreversible. Some things are truly irreversible at this point, right? It has to be confronted. So, like, if you have a good analysis of what can and can't change, you know what what you have the work you have to do, right? Second, you do have to believe that the world can, in fact, still be different, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what one thing our generation grew up with is there's no alternative, right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, the 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 pinnacle of capitalist civilization, right? This is just the way things are. Nothing will ever change. Get used to it. Um, no, in fact, like you have to believe the world still can be different because it's changed radically over and over and over and over again, right? Yeah. Um, I think of one of my favorite anar anarchist authors who said something like, you know, um, people who say, you know, capitalism will never uh, go away. Well, like people used to believe in feudalism and the divine right of kings, and that did change, right? Humans can set their minds to... Yeah many, many things and bring about radical change. And then we just know it's been done, right? So you shouldn't yeah. be told that it can't be done. Um, yeah. I think like the third thing, the last thing I would say is again, understanding that the power to affect change has to be built from the ground up, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think everyone can see by now, certainly your generation can, uh, our major political parties and leaders are not coming to our rescue, right? Uh, both on the left and the right, in the mainstream, uh, whether we're talking the parties um, or not, um, you know, they live in fear of us in some ways. They live in fear that, you know, great masses of people, working class people will be disaffected, will rise up right, right. and try to divest them of their power, divest them of money mm -hmm. um, to make a better world. Right. So, again, having an awareness that, like, these are the forces you're stacked against. These people are not coming to help you. However, um, real power can be built from the ground up with you and your peers. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, I, I, th I think that that's, that's got to be the analysis to have when you're going to confront climate change, mm -hmm. racism, um, a, a, an undemocratic economy, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of how I would encourage you. But again, I think, I think mm -hmm. all this has to happen in your book groups with your peers and in the organizing that you do. Um, yeah. You have much to teach us as much as we can, you know, provide advice to you. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you.
that definitely gave me um, a greater perspective on wealth disparity and and more just everything we talked about great good you've had some great questions these were hard questions <laughs> a bit so i appreciate it and i hope yeah this gets used right i hope it's it's actually just the beginning of conversations that can that can begin to happen yeah. um small town and, and and beyond so i really appreciate the forum to do it